Welcome back to All Your Favorite Music is Probably, where we take a themed dive into popular songs and unearth the connections like pearls in oysters. I'm your host, Mark Montgomery French, music culture writer, film composer, and cake enthusiast. And today's theme is All Your Favorite Music is Probably Songs That Are Female Powered. And I have a powerful female with me today as my guest. It is author and educator Kaya Oaks. Hi, Kaya. Hi, Mark. Thank you for trekking all this way to be on my podcast. I know it was a very, very long walk, but uh, much appreciated. Can you tell the listeners the name of your new book that's coming out? Sure. It's coming out in November of this year, which would be 2021. Mm -hmm. And it's called The Defiant Middle, colon, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens, and there's a hyphen there, In-Betweens, to Change the World, which is a ridiculously long subtitle. Um, It is a nonfiction book about the social and cultural expectations of women and how we are defined by those and how we can push back against them with the help of role models from times gone by. Awesome. By the way, my podcast is longer than any (laughs) podcast needs to be, so I'm not going to complain about the length of your title. Uh, I ended mine with ellipses, all right? So I'm totally open. So, uh, So... I'm glad we have you here because you are a female writer, and I want to kick off this podcast about a female songwriter. And the one thing that's always been sort of weird to me is that there's lots of female songwriters, but no one ever really knows about them unless they are in a rock band themselves, let's say like Lita Ford or Joan Jett or uh, the Bengals. Uh, They've always been around, sometimes in teams, and almost always hidden away for some bizarre reason. For example... You know Hollow Notes. We all know Hollow Notes because, well, they were kind of big. And about, I think nine or ten of their top ten hits was written by uh, two sisters, uh, Sarah Allen and Jenna Allen. And I believe one of them was dating uh, Daryl Hall. And they wrote more hits for them than John Oates wrote for them. That's fascinating. I did not know that. <laughs> I really didn't. And trying to find even information on them is hard. Trying to find pictures of them is hard. Uh, But they wrote a bunch of stuff. And one of the songs that they wrote is a little tiny tune that went to number one called Private Eyes. So let's play Private Eyes by Daryl Hall and John Oates, co-written by the Allen Sisters.
that was Hollow Notes with Private Eyes, co-written by the Allen sisters. And they were, to my knowledge, lyricists. Uh, Hall and sometimes Oates wrote, wrote the music. And they wrote the lyrics to uh, pretty much all the big ones. I can't go for that and Man Eater. And most things you can remember by them were partially their word. It's interesting because almost all of the big Hollow Note songs were about romance and breakup and heartache. And to think that all those songs were sung by a dude but written by a woman makes it really interesting. It could be why they were hits because everybody could relate. I don't know because they definitely were not the He-Man, I love you. Or, uh, you know, R&B, you know, girl, you know, more nuanced than that. Right. Or stalking or uh, spying on people, which we can all relate to. (laughs) But it does put an interesting twist on it to think about songs about like Maneater or this one Mm -hmm. written by being written by women and sort of like a gendered flip on the idea of people spying on each other, stalking one another, like, is that suddenly a feminist thing? Not really. It's still not a good thing to do. But it's a, it's an interesting twist to thinking about, because we don't think about the lyrics that much with that band. But when you reconsider who wrote the lyrics and understanding that was two women, that's really interesting. You know, I'd have to go back and listen to it again. But I wonder if there's like any way in which we can think about that song differently now. Yeah, it's just instead of a guy with a big mustache, <laughs> right? Yes, very true. So when I think about other women in music that no one ever sees, I think about session musicians, and most of them are dudes. Uh, but one of the most famous one in the Wrecking Crew group in LA in the 60s and 70s was Carol Kay. And Carol Kay played bass on possibly 10,000 recordings. And she was Brian Wilson's go-to person from the Beach Boys when he stopped playing bass, right? She was Quincy Jones's go-to person for playing bass. Or he would tell people, I want that Carol K sound, which is basically, I believe, a, f- a Fender Precision bass played with a pick. Did she play on Wichita Lineman? She did play on Wichita Lineman. Probably Lineman. the most famous bass line in, in pop music in some ways other than you know all the funk ones but right right a song with a really strong bass line she that also, stands out she also sorry she also played on um the bass line to the batman tv show <laughs> which might be for tv very closely related to wichita lineman so completely <laughs> she played on yeah a bunch of glenn campbell in fact glenn campbell was one of the wrecking crew mm. and so he probably had a line of who would be good on my record i know the person sitting next to me for Sessions and sessions. Have you talked on this show yet about what a um, what a session musician is? I have not. Why don't they do that now? Yeah. There used to be a time before uh, sequencers and computers and Pro Tools and machinery that made music, and real people had to play them. And most acts, if they were a pop act, was a person or a second person, and they didn't have a band. So when they went to make a record, they would hire the best musicians possible. They were all in a union, and they all played on a bunch of people's records. So you could pick up uh, some Motown or uh, Sonny and Cher or the Righteous Brothers, and it would be the same 20, 30, 40 people all playing on all the records. In fact, as a group, they played on more hits than any other group in history of music. You know, so there wasn't anybody like a prince necessarily who was like, I'll run the tape and I'll set the mics. And no, it was, it was a bunch of people. And it was mostly, no, I think it was all men except for Carol Kay. 
And so I want to play one of the songs that I love by her, one of the many of the thousands, which is Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking. And it sounds like this. was Nancy Sinatra, These Boots Are Made for Walking, with the great Carol Kay on bass. There are two bass lines. The, the famous dropping one, doom, 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 is an upright bass, but Carol Kay is playing electric bass because someone thought there were two basses. Now, Carol Kay was also liked, she was friendly, she was professional, but she also knew jazz and she knew um, other kinds of music. So no matter what kind of song they had, she could adapt. And a lot of times they would kind of just sketch out Here's roughly how the bass should go, and she'd make up the line on the spot, and they all had to do that. So there's a rough arrangement, and they also knew that she was a professional and could do this. So she was so any cool bass line you can find of hers, with maybe the exception of a Beach Boys song, because Brian Wilson was pretty particular. Uh, she wrote that too. So, I mean, not wrote and got money for it, but wrote it as in, find a cool part to play, Carol. Okay, give me a sec. Okay, got it. That's fantastic, Carol. Thank you very much. So, speaking of writing, as I'm here with a writer, <laughs> I want to talk about Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys by Willie Nelson. Well, prominently by Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. It actually was a cover, 
by a guy named Ed Bruce. And Ed Bruce wrote that song with his wife, Patsy. Mm. So, and Patsy was also a lyricist, and Patsy was the one who said, seriously, hey, Ed, that song you have, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Guitar Players, I have a better noun. So, uh... So she's a rock star <laughs> for coming up with, I mean, she did more than that in that song. But I, I never really thought about that song being written by a woman either. But it's a song about moms and their children, and that kind of makes sense, mm -hmm. right? So, so now I am going to play the one great song uh, that, well, I'm sure Patsy wrote a bunch of other songs, but the one that's probably the most famous, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys by Patsy Bruce but performed by Willie and Waylon. Cowboys ain't easy to love and they're harder to hold. They'd rather give you a song than diamonds or gold. Long star belt buckles and old faded Levi's and each night begins a new day. If you don't understand him, he don't die young. He'll probably just ride away. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up be cowboys Cause they never stay home and they're always alone Even with someone they love Cowboys like smoky old pool rooms and clear mountain mornings Little warm puppies and children and girls of the night Them that don't know him won't like him And them that do sometimes won't know how to take it He ain't wrong, he's just different But his pride won't let him do things To make you think he's right Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be And that was Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys by Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, co-written by Patsy Bruce. Now, when I think of this song, I think of probably the first time I really heard country music because it came out when I was 10. Um, what was your first or most memorable listening of this song, Kaya? Um, I always think of the Alvin and the Chipmunks version, which I, I may have, I may be making up, but I have this very powerful memory of Alvin and the Chipmunks covering this and saying, Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be chipmunks. So, or, so who knows? Uh, but from childhood, where did we learn about music on the monkeys? Yeah. Uh, if you're Gen X and you, <laughs> your mom worked like both of ours did and you, the TV was your babysitter. Um, 
the monkeys, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Partridge Family, and the Bradys. So that was kind of cover versions of pop music as done by those groups. But this song, particularly, I remember because my dad liked Willie Nelson. So I also, you know, heard it in the car. That's interesting. I, years ago, was with my um, four-year-old niece who was running around the house singing Blondie's One Way or Another. And I'm like, what? How is this? And then someone had to point out to me that was in like some movie, some animation movie where they do covers. And it, 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 I had not thought about that. So, it's, so it's still about children's shows, but now it's, you know, funny animals. Right. So like I think about the fact that many people were introduced to the music of Nick Cave through the movie Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's wonderful. Speaking of classic <laughs> rock, um, as uh, I'm sure you are and I am and many people listening to this podcast were fans of David Bowie. And David Bowie was a big fan of jazz. And he played saxophone, kind of okay. And he, uh, on 2014, got with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, which is this fantastic jazz orchestra. And Maria Schneider has a probably 20 people in the band and she writes stuff and she won a Grammy last year for a, for best jazz ensemble album, I think, uh, data Lords. Anyway, she's amazing. And so when David Bowie did, uh, his 2014, uh, compilation called nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Um, he wanted to write a song with her just out of the blue. Hi, I'm David Bowie. And after she dropped the phone said, yes, how can I help you? <laughs> they wrote a song and it's very much a jazz orchestral a dense, complex song. Hmm. And uh, it's called Sue or In a Season of Crime. He actually did it twice. He did it uh, for his compilation, and he also re-recorded it uh, for Blackstar. But I'm going to play the original because it's groovy. So this is David Bowie with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, and the song is called Sue or In a Season of Crime.
So that was David Bowie and the Maria Schneider Orchestra doing Sue or In a Season of Crime. She co-wrote that. She arranged it. She led the band. She conducted. You know, it, it's basically her song with him on vocals. But, you know, he asked. So uh, it also won a Grammy uh, for Best Arrangement Instrumental and Vocals. She's an OG. So if anybody listening, go check out the album Data Lords, which she did. It's fantastic. But now I want to spit on some early, early music, and I want to talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp. Because if you look at, oh, let's say, the, a list of the early rock and rollers, right? Look at Elvis and Little Richard and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and Chuck Berry. They all got their vibe from her. So without her, there'd be no rock and roll, period. And she uh, played electric guitar, and she's one of the first people to drive the country in a bus uh, for her rock and roll, and uh, she is very much the reason why all of this is here. Mm -hmm. So I want to play one of the songs that made her big from 1947 called Up Above My Head. This is Sister Rosetta Tharp. Up above my head. Up above my head. I hear music in the air. I hear music in the air. Now up above my head. Up above my head. Somewhere, heaven, somewhere, up above my head, up above my head. 
And that was Sister Rosetta Tharp and her song, Up Above My Head. Kaya, you got a story about her you want to talk about? Yeah, I was um, at Notre Dame University about five years ago for a conference on writing and religion, and a black Jesuit priest gave a talk on Sister Rosetta Tharp. He is a poet. His uh, poet's poetic pseudonym is Luke, just Luke. And um, he is a he's an amazing poet, and he has written a lot of poems inspired by her work because a lot of her songs like that one were um, black church music that she added, you know, she spun into rock and roll. And then, of course, later, people like Led Zeppelin would cover this kind of stuff. <laughs> but they were like, yes, but also Satan. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's really ironic how that came full circle. And here's how I found out about this song. I found out this song through King's X, the uh, oh, somewhat yeah. Christian band uh, from, I believe, Texas, King's X. And they did a song inspired by it called Over My Head. And very similar lyrics, different music altogether, very spiritual. You could tell they're a very gospel-sounding frontman. And only after looking back, going, this song sounds familiar, that I realized that, oh, you, 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 you took this as a bass and made a whole new cake out of it. So, yes. And... Uh, it's, it's funny, she went she was big in the 40s and 50s, ignored after that, and about 10 years ago, people realized she was the one. Yeah. She was the one. Now she's in the Rock Roll Hall of Fame, and as you said, there are Jesu black Jesuit priests talking about her, as all black Jesuit priests should be. <laughs> Speaking of black people doing things you wouldn't expect, I want to talk about Dorothy Ashby. Dorothy Ashby was a jazz harp player, and when I mean jazz harp, I don't mean Mark is talking about the harmonica. She actually played the harp. And she was the first people to think about it as being a real melodic instrument and not a gimmick shoved in to make some funky sounds. And so she uh, did a wonderful album called The Ruby Yacht of Dorothy Ashby, uh, which it, she also plays Kodo on that as well. And it's really fascinating. Wow. But she also did some sessions for some people like Stevie Wonder. On Stevie's Songs in the Key of Life, there's a song called If It's Magic, and it's just Stevie and her playing harp. And it's beautiful. And I remember when the album came out, I was seven. And, it, you know, most of the album is drums and guitars and layers of vocals. And it's just this really beautiful, tiny bit of sparkle in between all these other big songs. So I want to play that for you now. So this is Stevie Wonder with Dorothy Ashby on harp, and it's called If It's Magic. If it's magic, then why can't it be everlasting? Like the sun that always shines, like the poet's endless rhyme, like the galaxies in time. If it's pleasing, then why can't it be never leaving? Like the day that never fails. Like on seashores there are shells. Like the time that always tells. It holds the key. Through all the universe 
was Stevie Wonder with Dorothy Ashby on harp with his song, If It's Magic. It's really interesting that uh, Dorothy Ashby, is that right? Yep. And uh, Alice Coltrane were both black women who played harps in jazz. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And when you listen to them back to back, um, that they're extremely different, both... Alice Coltrane being more experimental and Dorothy Ashby being a little more funky, a little more uh, melodic, I guess is the right word. And it just reminds us again that like even in the limited ways that women were able to play music in the past, they often played plucked or string instruments, but how that has been so radically reinvented into the present or in the 70s in this case. So an instrument like the harp that you might have heard in I don't know, Celtic music mm-hmm. or something. Although harps exist all over the world, right? Yeah. There's harps in the Bible, you know, so we know harps are a very ancient instrument. People were playing back around the world, but that you can bring a harp today and do two totally different things, you know, like with these two women. So that's fascinating. Yeah. It, it's also odd, as you mentioned, women were asked to play plucked instruments, you know, and, now it's like it's only maybe in the last 20 years has there been um, a march toward women playing electrified guitars, right? There always right. were some, but in the 80s, you could count on a couple of bands that were popular. In the 90s, I think it's when it really started to say, you know what, we're not just going to put them down again. It's not a fad. It's not um, a goof. We actually like playing raunchy, distorted guitars and making ugly sounds with them because it's fun. Um <laughs> Just to see that look on your face. I wonder if um, Dorothy Ashby would walk into a room and someone would go, oh, I love your husband's sax playing, because we get them confused with Alice Coltrane, because there's so few. <laughs> um, having sometimes been the only other black guy at an all-rock concert, I'd, I would get sometimes that, oh, oh, no. Right. Yeah, it's like you're, I thought there was another black guy who goes to see uh, ska bands. No, no, it's just me. <laughs> 
just me. I want to talk about some old-fashioned rockabilly. And when I think about uh, a woman doing old-fashioned rockabilly back when it was just called rockabilly, I think of Wanda Jackson, who was a contemporary of Elvis, Presley, not Costello, in case you were curious. <laughs> uh, and she had some hits on the pop chart doing rockabilly, eventually went to country, and actually was sort of brought back to life by uh, Jack White about 10 years ago. But she uh, was one of the first women to play ro- rockabilly. And it's weird because, uh, again, women weren't allowed to, I guess, even be near guitars at that point. And so having somebody who could kind of cross-pollinate uh, country and rock probably helped, actually. So I think country seemed to be safer for women to be in, as opposed to the harsh Negro-adjacent music that rock was. But I want to play for you one, uh, a hit that actually inspired a much bigger hit. And that song by Wanda Jackson is called Funnel of Love. was Wanda Jackson with Funnel of Love, that voice. I love that voice. It's fascinating. It's so unique. And you would recognize it immediately. And that's such an interesting thing. There's um, a lot of women in music who have unusual voices, like Mm -hmm. Grace Jones or Mm -hmm. Bjork or Joni Mitchell or... um, Oh, uh, Minnie Ripperton, like just the range of the female voice is really fascinating. One of my favorite voices in music is Anne Honey, mm-hmm. um, who is a trans woman, best, better known formerly as Anthony and the Johnsons. Uh, and what's really interesting about her voice is that it's so ethereal and sort of like beyond gender. It doesn't sound like any gender. And do you remember when Tracy Chapman came out? Yep. And a lot of people thought she was a man. 
Um, and <laughs> it was really interesting because that to me didn't sound like a man. It just sounded like a beautiful voice. But then you hear just unusual voices in music, um, how often those are women. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Tracy Chapman sing with just her guitar in Oakland Arena. It was the 1988 Amnesty International uh, tour. So it was Peter Gabriel and some other people, I think Bruce Springsteen, maybe Bruce Springsteen. And they all had their bands, huge bands, the 80s, you know, cacophonous drums and samplers. And just her and her guitar had the entire, I think, 30,000 people in there stunned to silence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would swear the place was empty because her voice was so commanding, and she and she wasn't doing it from her crazy dance moves. You know, she just had that voice that just it hits you like right in like your pleasure center, and just <laughs> stops. But uh, you know, you, you're talking about women with interesting voices. Uh, I think of an artist whose voice is strange and commanding in that way is Sinead O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Sinead hit some really rough almost even in the song like nothing compares to you i think the reason why that song connects so hard is because she sounds you could hear all the emotions she's you could hear the pain she's sometimes screeching she's always in tune but she'll hit a tone that would normally i could see a producer going you're a lady please don't make your voice like that and she's like this is all i'm gonna do is make my <laughs> voice like this and then make it like this right um if she ever decides to stop doing uh, singing, she also could have a wonderful role in Hollywood doing voiceovers for animations because she can make her voice do all sorts of crazy things, um, uh, and and but also lovely. When I thought about doing this episode, I thought about my favorite uh, unsung yet always around woman in music, and that's Anne Dudley, because Anne Dudley uh, not only scores Hollywood movies. But she also is a member of Art of Noise. In fact, she's the only person who's been in Art of Noise without leaving for the last 40 years. And uh, they were very they were very forward in sampling and 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 uh, looping and dance music. But she was a classical pianist with an actual deep musical background and was probably uh, the best musician in the group. So when they did things that, that were less about beat and more about melody, she had them done Um she also was an arranger for ABC and all those strings on Let's Kind of Love, that was all of those strings on Let's Kind of Love, that was her. So she's amazing. And I want to play probably one of the prettier songs that Art of Noise has, which is called Moments in Love.
And that was Moments in Love by Art of Noise. That was co-written, co-arranged, and co-produced by Anne Dudley. So it's interesting to think about women stepping in the music business into roles that are behind the scenes because doing things like arranging and composing requires them to um, to lead other people, yeah. which is, you know, something women don't get to do very often. But I think a lot of people don't know what it means to be an arranger. Maybe people know that composing means writing music, but it also means what? So what is what is an arranger and what do they do? And why is it unusual for women to do it? So a composition is, here are the notes on a page. If you have a melody with some words for a pop song, that's the composition. What arrangement is, when you go to a studio or you give it to real people, you go, well, how fast are we going to play this song? Are we going to have an extra percussionist or just a drummer? Maybe a drum machine. Part of her job uh, as a ranger, when she worked with ABC and had a string section, was, okay, they don't have money for a big orchestra. How can I make this small orchestra sound big? And so she would do things like, I'll have all the string players play the exact same note, but in different octaves. So it'll sound bigger mm -hmm. as opposed to playing it in the same octave. So these are all decisions that she makes and all arrangers make. And the difference between that song was okay to that song was amazing. And it's things like that. Um, and so she is one of the best. She also uh, scored, let's see, she won the Oscar for scoring the Full Monty movie. Mm -hmm. And she's only one of three women to ever actually win an Oscar for scoring. Rachel Portman for Emma. And last year for The Joker, uh, it was won by Hildur Guntnadotter. And that's my best Icelandic accent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. And fascinatingly, in Iceland, all women's names and in Dotter and men's in son. Like, you've noticed that, right? Because yes. Bjork is Gudman's daughter. And, and I had a student from Iceland. Um, this is just more trivia for you at Berkeley. And I said, um, have you ever heard of a band called Sigur Rose? This was like 15 years mm -hmm. ago. And when they were big and she said, yes, my cousin is in that band. So wow. <laughs> it really is a very small country. <laughs> uh, on, they have a special dating app in Iceland that tells you whether or not someone is your cousin. So, yes. There are certain <laughs> other parts of the country I won't name where that could be useful. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. That says nothing to do with women being arrangers. But it is interesting <laughs> during things like the Oscars when you're watching and you don't realize, you know, oh, this woman just won this award. She might be the first one who ever won it. Oh, yeah. Or one of only a handful. And I think what you're saying about... How music is written goes back to the fact that women were not able to read and write and were not educated until much more recently than men were in most cultures. And so we're still catching up. That makes sense. So now we get to the big one, because we're going to talk about someone who's a co-writer, a co-producer and a co-label owner. And I even if you don't know her and an artist. And her name is Sylvia Robinson. And Sylvia Robinson used to be in a band called Mickey and Sylvia. They have a song called Love is Strange. If you don't know it, but you saw Dirty Dancing, there's a scene uh, where Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze are kind of dancing and, and macking on each other and kind of get interrupted. That's Love is Strange. I've never seen the movie, but I've seen that part. Uh, 
She also, among other things, st- co-started with her husband, Sugar Hill Records, mm-hmm. home of the first well-known rap song, Rapper's Delight, by the Sugar Hill Gang, named... She put them together. They basically were fused together like a boy band. They were the BTS of hip-hop. <laughs> yes, they were. Right. And actually, I learned that from Jeff Chang's book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, which I love and teach. And he talks about how it kind of makes sense, given what happened later with hip-hop, that it made sense that the first big hip-hop song was by a fake group with stolen rhymes. <laughs> On a stolen melody. I love that line. Right. Which wasn't her fault. She was just trying to make a record. But when you think about it in retrospect, you know, and the fact that what hip-hop, and we talk about BTS and all these questions about cultural appropriation, <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm going to appropriate your rhymes. From a dude who lives 20 minutes from me. Yeah. So Sugar Hill Records, for a brief time, was the biggest independent rap label in the world. And one of the songs that she co-wrote and co-produced on her label that she co-owned was Millie Mel's White Lines. And I want to play that for you right now. Fuck, so don't do it! Free! Rock! 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 R
higher, baby. Get higher, baby. And don't ever come down. Free base. Don't you get too high. Don't you get too high, baby. Turns you on. You really turn me on and on. Cause you gotta come down. My temperature is rising. Arrested, gonna do some time. He got out three years from now just to commit more crime. A businessman is caught with 24 kilos. He's out on bail and out of jail, and that's the way it goes. Athletes rejected, governors corrected, gangsters, thugs, and smugglers are thoroughly respected. The money gets divided. The women get excited. Now I'm broke and it's no joke. It's hard as hell to fight it. Don't buy it. Free. <laughs> and that was Melly Mel with White Lines. If you have an original copy of this on vinyl, it says Grandmaster and Melly Mel. Not Grandmaster Flash, Grandmaster and Melly Mel. Because Grandmaster Flash left the label and she didn't think Melly Mel's name was strong enough, so she kind of stuck this Grandmaster by itself in front, which did not make Melly Mel happy. Another thing that happened was, similar to how the bass line in Rapper's Delight was pilfered, the bass line for White Lines was pilfered from a song called Cavern from a band called Liquid Liquid. And their label said, pay us. So there was a lawsuit, and the lawsuit took out both labels. 99 Records was the label that had Cavern, and they did win a settlement against Sugar Hill Records, but the lawsuit meant that they had to shut down, and then Sugar Hill Records went into receivership, and that's the end. It's too bad because when we think about the history of hip hop and the fact that there are still to this day not a lot of women who um, are running labels or producing hip hop, there are obviously this amazing new crop of women rapping, right? Yep. And um, but it's too bad that her legacy is tainted by that. But we have to remember too that hip hop in that era, the stuff we now have about sampling and fair use, none of that existed. Mm -mm. And so people were just taking beats, you know, I mean, Cohort created hip hop by putting two records next to each other <laughs> and he didn't ask anybody's permission to do that. So it was the, that's why we can't hear any, um, day of the soul, right? Because right. of the sample clearance issues. So she's still a really important figure in the history of music, even though it's sort of a sordid story in retrospect at the time, I don't think people knew or cared until no. they got sued. <laughs> oh, what's this? No, she, she's a, Sylvia Robinson is a fascinating, figure and you can definitely say that if she had not gotten involved and did what she did hip-hop would have won a completely different version it may not have even gotten out of new york probably not and that's really fascinating to think about because 50 years later we are looking at the most dominant you know form <laughs> of music in the world giving k-pop something to do right so. <laughs> right it's like worldwide what's what's more popular than hip-hop oxygen right <laughs> breathing in and out right and and then you know fat beats <laughs> and with that kaya that is the end of our podcast thank you very much for being on the show and once again people look for her book coming out in november called 
The Defiant Middle. She has other books you can look up to on Amazon, um, and they're all lovely. And that's our show. Come back next week where we will unveil another fun theme, original music, courtesy of Spiky Blimp. And you can follow me on the Instagrams and the Twitter as Mr. French. That's M-R-F-R-3-N-C-H. Not an E. That was taken. M-R-F-R-3-N-C-H. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Originally broadcast on KACRLP Alameda. Underwritten by Brands That Get You, home of the branding sprint for startups. Get programs for pitches, launches, and rebrands. Learn more at brandsthatgetyou.com.